Well, imagine that you and I could go back in time to August of 64 AD. Nero has just burned the city of Rome and he needs a scapegoat. And so what he does is he decides to blame all those fires on a brand new knockoff cult um, called the Way. Nero tells everyone that these people are the ones who are responsible for the destruction of the city of Rome. And so what he does is he, he decides to send his soldiers to go all throughout the city, rounding up members of this cult so that he can actually burn them in his arena. You and I, however, we decide to go outside the city of Rome. We visit a farm and behind the farmhouse is a barn. We go to the barn and in the back of the barn huddles three families, each members of the way who have fled the city of Rome and they've lost everything they have. They know that they're never again going to be able to go back to their city. They, they know that there's been a bounty placed on their heads. They know that people have been actually paid to go and find them and bring them back to Nero. And so you and I sit down on the floor of the barn with these three frightened families, their children crying, the men and women scared to death, and they don't know what to do or what to say. And so you and I, we look at them and we tell them it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay because we too follow Jesus. And so they don't have to be afraid. In fact, we tell them that one day the entire city of Rome will be filled with followers of Jesus. We tell them that one day you won't even be able to walk down a single street in the city of Rome without seeing crosses everywhere. They'll be affixed to every single thing imaginable from buildings to walls to highways to signs. They'll be everywhere, but, but they won't be wooden crosses. And these crosses won't represent Rome. These crosses won't even represent crucifixion. Instead, these crosses will represent just one single crucifixion of one Jewish carpenter, the very man that they worship, Jesus of Nazareth, their Lord. We tell them that one day, this movement that they are a part of is going to become so internationally known that the city they fled from, the city where Nero lives, that one day there will be more crosses in memory of Jesus in that city than any other city in the world, that the day is coming when no one will worship Jupiter. That the day will come when followers of Jesus from all over the world will publicly make pilgrimages to Rome, to the site where Nero's arena currently sits, where their brothers and sisters are being put to death. But one day on that site, instead of an arena, there'll be a cathedral. A cathedral built in memory of Peter the fisherman, the leader of this movement that they call the Way. I mean, can you imagine what would run through their minds. I mean, they would look at us like we're fools. They would, they would look at us like we're crazy. They would say, because there, there's no way. Rome is forever. Jupiter is forever. They would say, yes, we believe in Jesus the Messiah. Yes, we believe he's our savior, but, but his movement is so small. I mean, there's only a handful of us. And there's no way in the world that Rome would ever surrender to Jesus and, and publicly follow him. And yet within just 300 years, just 300 years it happened, but how? It happened because the people embraced the teachings in the stories from Jesus at such a significant level that over time they changed the world. And so today in our final installment of Stories from Jesus, we're going to go and we're going to actually look at the story that started it all. This was early on in Jesus' ministry and you've heard these words before. Matthew chapter 5, this is where it all begins. This is Jesus' Roman Empire ending speech, beginning in verse 3. Jesus tells us, he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed 
are the meek. Blessed are the gentle. Blessed are the humble. Blessed are the considerate. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. And it's like, okay, Jesus, hang on, time out. Meek? Really, Jesus? Okay, I've got a question here. Jesus, are you even from around here? I mean, Jesus, do you know what's going on in the world right now? Do, Do you know where meekness has gotten us? I mean, do you know where meekness will get us? Blessed are the meek. The meek are the ones that are going to inherit the earth. Jesus, we can't even control our own nation. Where, where is meekness going to get us? Really? Meek? Blessed are those who hunger and who thirst for righteousness. For they will be filled. Fill, filled with what? Righteousness? Blessed are the merciful. For they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart. For they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the children of God. To which, again, we got to say, Jesus, hang on a minute. Peacemakers? Peacemakers, Jesus, do you really think that we're going to be able to to retake our world and, and retake our nation, retake our country by peacemaking? I mean, Jesus, do you know what happens to people who make peace with those people? They're swallowed up. I mean, they're consumed. They just become more of the tax-paying horde. Peacemaking, Jesus? Where is this going? Jesus, what did we sign up for? Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you falsely and say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Right? And at this point, Peter kind of leans over to Matthew and says, okay, Matthew, are you writing this down? And Matthew's like, I'm not even sure this is worth writing down. I mean, maybe he's going to do a, a miracle or something because, listen, this, this speech, this isn't going anywhere. I mean, really, Jesus? You're saying that, that this is the start of something? Jesus, let me see if I've got this right. You're saying that that we're poor, sad, meek, righteous, merciful, pure, peaceful, persecuted, insulted people who are waiting for a reward in heaven? That's who we are, Jesus? And you think this is going somewhere? But see, 300 years later, the message of Jesus is everywhere and nobody's worshiping Jupiter anymore. But see, Jesus knew his audience didn't understand what he was saying. He knew they couldn't believe what he was telling them. And so Jesus decides to tell them his first story. And so Jesus, looking at his audience once more, he says, okay, let me tell you who you are because yes, it's true, you are all of those things, but you're also this. Let me put all of that into practical terms because you're gonna struggle with this. Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. That's who you are, you are the salt of the earth. Now, everybody listening to Jesus that day knew what salt was. They knew that salt was a preservative because, because they didn't have refrigeration, right? When things, you know, when there's no preservative, things decompose. When there's no preservative, things rot. When there is no preservative, things stink. Here's what Jesus was saying to his audience. Here's what he's saying to us today. You are the preservative of the entire earth. If you don't preserve, the earth rots. If you don't preserve, the world will stink. And imagine the world that Jesus was speaking into, right? A world where might made right. I mean, if you wanted to know what the right thing to do was, you just looked for the strongest people with the biggest army. That's how right was determined. 
There was no such thing as a moral or an ethical issue. Women had no rights. Children had fewer rights. Mercy, compassion, generosity, these were not virtues. They were signs of weakness. It was a world that we can't even imagine. In fact, the only way we can imagine it is when we occasionally hear about some other countries in our world that are still operated by that worldview. And see, what we can't fully appreciate in the Western world, what we certainly can't appreciate as Americans, is that much of what we assume to be common human decency, it is not common. It was learned. It was taught by Jesus through his stories that eventually went all the way around the world and transformed cultures everywhere because we can't imagine that a woman would be treated any less than a man. And intuitively, we know that a person should never have ownership of another person for any reason or that a group of people could be treated as being less than simply because of the amount of melanin in their skin. I mean, are you kidding me? We know there's just something wrong about that. We know that children are precious. But why do we think children are precious when other cultures don't think that children are precious at all? Why do we think that when people are generous and they give of their extra to help someone in need, why do we say that's good instead of weak? Why do we applaud mercy? Why do we stop and celebrate the person who risks their life for the sake of someone in need? Why do we think that's good? See, it is not human nature. It is not common human decency. It is the reflection of a worldview that says there is one single God and that eventually you will and I will give an account of our lives to that one single God. And that one single God, he loves everyone that we will ever be eyeball to eyeball with. Red, yellow, black, and white, they are all precious in his sight. Male, female, children. And see, the first century disciples, they grabbed onto this truth and they believed it. And Jesus said, look, you have no standing, but you're the last stand. And if you are not the salt of the earth and the earth rots, and if you think it's bad now, you give up and you go with the current and you'll see how bad things can really get. And every single day, we benefit from a worldview that says men and women and children have value. That men, women, and children are somehow made in the image of God, and that is not intuitive because, let's face it, when we hear about genocide in other countries, when we hear about the way that people are trafficked in this country, and we think, how could anyone treat someone that way? It's very simple. They do not see the world the way that you see it, and the reason they don't see the world the way that you see it is because you have been taught to see the world the way that you do, and it is precisely because ideas like mercy and compassion, generosity, forgiveness, and grace are not intuitive that Jesus had to teach them to us and model them for us. And it is because they were taught that they can also be forgotten or ignored. Jesus continues and he says, but if the salt loses its saltiness. Now, when we read this phrase in our Bibles, we see loses its saltiness. But actually in the original Greek text, that phrase is just, it's just one single word. It's the word moreno. And it means to be made unwise or to be made foolish. And so Jesus is in fact using a pun to say this. He's saying, listen, as the people who carry my name and who carry my teaching... You are the wisdom of the world. You are the common sense of the world. And if the preservative of the world does not preserve any longer, or if that which is meant to bring wisdom to the world becomes foolish, 
If the right thing to do becomes the wrong thing to do, if what is right from God's perspective becomes wrong and is lost, if the salt loses its saltiness, that is, if you just blend in, if you just go with the flow, if you just embrace the structure of power that the world models for us, if you decide that what matters is being number one to the detriment of everyone else around you, if you decide that somehow living for yourself makes you someone, if you forget that the value of a life is always measured by how much of it is given away, if you lose your saltiness, Jesus says, how can it be made salty again? In other words, if the very thing that makes us the preservative of the world, which is our connection to Jesus and his teaching, if that, if we go away, if we disappear or go silent, then there's no hope, Jesus says, because there will be no salt. Consequently, Jesus said, it is no longer good for anything. Right? Don't go by that too quickly. It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by people. And see, again, this, this made no sense to the people listening to Jesus that day. But looking back, it makes all the sense in the world. Because Jesus was saying, as my followers, you're the hope. Not because of you, but because you are the ones carrying you are the ones embodying the truth of who your Heavenly Father really is, what He's like, and what He's done. And that just simply does not exist anywhere else on the planet. You are the salt. You are the hope. You are the preservative of the whole world. And not only that, Jesus says, you are the light of the world. Now, you know what's so strange about this when Jesus said this? You know how big the world was? especially to that group of people who were gathered there that day. I mean, most of these people, they never traveled more than about 15 miles from their homes. There were entire continents that hadn't even been discovered yet that now have churches on them because of what Jesus said. That you are the light of a world that you don't even know anything about. He continues, a city on a hill, or, or more literally, a city placed on a hill, cannot be hidden. And see, this one little word, the word placed, is very important because what it is expressing to us and what Jesus was expressing to his original audience is this idea of intentionality, right? You're not a city that just happened to be on a hill or a city that was randomly or indiscriminately built on a hill. No, as my followers, you're a city whose location was planned out and specifically chosen so that it would be seen, so that it would be noticed by the people around it. Jesus is saying, just as a city on a hill, just as a town on a hill cannot be hidden, that's what you are. And he says, I know it may seem random to you, but as my follower, you are a strategically placed light. You have been strategically placed where you are, and you have been strategically placed when you are. And then he says this in verse 15. It says, neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. And don't miss this because what Jesus says next becomes the focus of everything that Jesus has just said. And in the same way, in the same way that salt preserves and prevents rotting and decay, 
In the same way that an architect strategically places and builds a city on a hill so that it cannot be missed, in the same way that each of you place the lamps in the rooms of your home so they give off as much light as possible to the people who are inside the house, in the same way, Jesus says, let your light shine before others. And again, don't miss this. Jesus is not talking about a light that you carry, but rather that you are a light. What he's talking about isn't something internal, this is external. This isn't simply about something you believe, it's about something that you do. It's not about thoughts and convictions, it's not about how much you pray or how often you read your Bible, it is about what other people actually see you do. Jesus says, I want you to let your light shine before people around you so that they may see your good deeds and literally give glory to your Father in heaven. And they're thinking, okay, Jesus, listen, nobody's even paying attention to our, our deeds. But Jesus says, just wait. Just wait. You follow me. And when people see your good deeds, when people see the way that you treat the sick, when people see the way that you honor women, when people see the way that you honor children, when a plague comes through a village and you no longer fear your death and so you stay behind and you care for the sick, you let people see your good deeds and eventually they will glorify your Father in heaven. And see, listen, you is not me. You is we. You is us. Because we don't miss this. We are the stewards of the church. We are the stewards of the faith for our, for this generation. So what are we going to do with it? Are we just going to take from it? Will we take whatever it is that we can get from it and just leave it weaker and sidelined and ineffective? Or will we actually engage with it and ensure that the church of Jesus of Nazareth continues to shape the conscience of our communities and our nation and even the world to come? Now, if you've been with us in person or online for the last several months, then you know that I've been challenging you to ask a question that I ask myself all the time. And that question is simply this. In this moment, in this relationship, in these circumstances, in my world, what does love require of me? And so today, as we wrap up our time together and as we wrap up this series together, I wanna to leave you with another question that I'm constantly asking that comes directly from this story from Jesus. But I've gotta warn you, this is a dangerous question. This question will lead you beyond the issues of just simply right and wrong. This question will lead you out onto the edge of things that the average person in our culture would never ever even consider. This question will lead you over the boundaries in terms of your devotion to your Heavenly Father and to Jesus in a way that, to be honest, most people are just simply too afraid to cross. This question is why normal people reduce their standard of living in order to give away more money. In fact, I've met so many people, normal people from our church, people who downsize houses, sell cottages, sell boats, sell cars, sell investments, sell the things that, that the rest of us are trying to get. They sell them and they just give that money away all because of this question. This question is why people in very, very difficult marriages decide to fight for the relationship, even when everyone else 
says bail out. This question is why people who have been deeply, deeply hurt choose to forgive. They realize I can either hang on to my anger and my bitterness or I can forgive. And after asking this question, they choose to forgive. It is a dangerous question. But let me tell you why you shouldn't just shut this question out as quickly as you may be tempted to. Because see, listen, even though it is a dangerous question, it is also the question that will draw you into the life that you were designed to live, the life that best reflects your creator, your heavenly father. It's the question that draws you out of a context that is no bigger than you and into a much larger, broader context, one in which few, our few years on this planet have the potential to make a difference that goes beyond your life. Here's the question. In this situation, what is most honoring to my Heavenly Father? In the circumstances that I am in right now, which is more honoring to my Heavenly Father? Because see, as a follower of Jesus, you have been created to reflect the image and the glory of your Heavenly Father. And let me tell you about you. And if this is offensive to you, I am sorry. That is not my intention. You can be angry at me for this. Um, but I hope that, that one night when you're laying in your bed at night that these words kind of come back and you reflect on them a little bit after you get past your frustration with me for saying them to you. But see, listen, understand this. Your glory, your glory is really too small a thing for you to give your life to. Your glory is too small a thing for you to live for. See, we never think about this, but everybody lives for somebody's glory, and you have never been in a class. You've never been hanging out with your friends. You've probably never even been in a small group where somebody said, hey, let's all go around the circle and say whose glory we're each living for, right? And probably for the vast majority of us in your entire life, nobody has ever challenged you to decide whose glory you're going to live for. So consequently, guess whose glory we choose? And see, let me tell you about living for your glory. Your glory is too small a thing to live for. In fact, intuitively, we know this because we know people who are all about their own glory and what happens. They become less content, right? More unhappy and more difficult to be with, right? Why? Because you were actually made for something more. You know how else we know about this? And this is going to sound strange at first, but, but just track with me on this. Have you ever been to a really great funeral, right? A, a really great funeral is where you celebrate a life. A great funeral is where you celebrate how much life a person gave away. You know what makes a funeral really, really sad? It's when people have to struggle to find something to say because deep down everybody knows that everything was really just all about them. See, listen, your glory, it is too small a thing for you to give your life to because you have been invited into something much bigger and much grander and much, much more glorious. And so here's my challenge to you. Will you just begin to ask, right? Just ask. I'm not even asking you to do. I just want you to begin asking yourself the question, which of these options would be most honoring to my heavenly father? Which will bring the most glory to him? You're gonna live for somebody's glory and you know, your glory is too small a thing to live for. And see, that's why. That's why your Heavenly Father has invited you to live for His. Because 2,000 years ago, Jesus launched something for the ages. 2,000 years ago, Jesus launched something for you and for us. And against all the odds, the church changed the world once. And there's still a great deal that needs to be changed about our world. 
And see, by God's grace and with your help, perhaps we, perhaps we can actually be a small part of bringing about that change in our community, in our nation, maybe even in our world. This is why the Apostle Paul said this to a group of first century believers who had no idea of what hung in the balance of them asking themselves this question. He said to them, my friends, stand firm. Let nothing move you, right? This is battleground language. Stand firm, don't retreat. Stand firm, dig in your heels. Stand firm, always, he said to them. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know, even though they didn't know, because you know, he said, that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. And their labor in the Lord was not in vain. Because we, you are here as a result of their labor. The question is, who will be here someday because of ours? What is most honoring to my Heavenly Father? This is the opportunity of a lifetime. This is the opportunity of our lifetime. Let's pray together today. Heavenly Father, I know this is such a big, such a, a big idea to talk about. And Father, I know that it's infinitely easier to just talk about and to think about than to go out and do. And so, Father, my prayer for all of us, my prayer for myself and for every single one of us watching today is that, that you would give to all of us just a small picture of what this looks like. What this looks like with our friends. What this looks like in our family. What this looks like with the people that we work with. What it looks like with our neighbors. With the new relationships that you're creating in our lives right now, even in the midst of this pandemic. Give us a picture of what it looks like to to be a preservative in all those relationships. Father, give us a picture of what it looks like and what it means to be light in our world. And Father, most of all, I pray that you would give each of us the courage to honestly ask that question in my life, in my relationships. What is most honoring to my Heavenly Father? That we would spend our lives bringing honor to the one who gave his life and that we would never ever grow weary of the labor that you have called us to because this, Heavenly Father, it is the opportunity of our lifetimes. And we know, we know, we've seen you do it once and Heavenly Father, we know that you can do it again. We pray all of this in Jesus' name.